Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Hello and welcome to the Global Council podcast. My name is Thomas Grotowski and I lead GC's Global Macro Practice. One of the key issues that we have been following closely in recent weeks is how countries around the world manage to access vaccines and start vaccinating their populations to reach a form of herd immunity in the not too distant future. The timing of this will likely have a major impact on the economic recovery as it will allow governments to lift restrictions that currently still impede business activity. Vaccine rollout will be an enormous challenge for countries with less financial resources and expertise in running vaccination campaigns. I'm therefore pleased to have two colleagues with me today who will help our listeners understand how emerging market and developing economies are dealing with this huge challenge. Brigitta Kinadi works in our Asia practice in Singapore and is a specialist on Southeast Asia. Isabel Trick works in the global macro practice in London and follows African economies particularly closely. Brigitta and Isabel, thank you for joining us today. Brigitta, let me start with you. There is a sense in Europe that Asian countries have weathered the pandemic better than others. Is this true for emerging markets in Asia? And which countries do you think uh, have been hardest hit? And what does it mean for the urgency that governments feel uh, to roll out vaccines across uh, Asia? Thanks, Thomas. Great to be here in this podcast. Um, among the emerging markets in Asia, I think there are, there are two distinct approaches, and we can see how the state of the pandemic and the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak and the spread of the virus domestically has um, impacted the government's approach towards vaccination rollouts in terms of how urgent and, and kind of um, politically necessary it has been. So on one end of the spectrum, we have India and Indonesia. Both countries have not really managed to um, contain the virus um, domestically and you know, dealing with a very high amount of case and death toll. Um, India has the second highest number of COVID-19 cases globally. So it was one of the first countries in Asia actually to start its vaccination program, um, which began in mid-January. And similarly, you know, another major developing market, Indonesia, um, which has the, you know, by far the highest case and death toll in Southeast Asia, um, has also started its uh, vaccination program around the same time in mid-January. And again, the economic angle is, is you know, we can't ignore this because um, trying to revive the economy, bring up the levels of domestic consumption, that's been a key um, kind of strategy and, and reasoning of why the government has been so um, has prioritized the vaccination program so urgently. On the other hand, we have countries um, in kind of the among the developing markets of Asia that have largely managed to contain the spread of the virus um, better. And in these cases, vaccines are not as urgently prioritized. Um, and, and a lot of these countries have that luxury of time um, in terms of rolling out their vaccines, which many others, including in the West, do not have. So a good example that I wanted to bring up is Vietnam, which has around 2,000 cases from a population of nearly 100 million. So as a result of you know, these very low numbers, the government has decided to focus more on a containment strategy rather than a vaccination strategy, um, saying that the latter is actually more risky um, and more you know, costly. 
Um, but at the same time, we see that trying to slow down the vaccination um, rollout and actually taking on um, a bit of that kind of wait and see approach might actually have some disadvantages as well, because um, Vietnam has actually, you know, despite saying that they're focusing on a containment strategy, because of recent outbreaks in major cities like Hanoi, um, they've actually um, had to kind of shift the stance a little bit and actually approved one of the major vaccines um, very rapidly to kind of actually bring the vaccination program up to speed again. But in a similar vein, I think um, it's good to kind of bring up Thailand as well, which has received a lot of domestic criticism for being too slow in ordering and procuring international vaccines. Um, to be fair, Thailand has managed to kind of um, contain the virus relatively well. Um, I think it has about 24,000 cases. Um, and for a country of that size, I think that's been relatively manageable. But um, again, a lot of domestic criticism because also Thailand is you know, hugely reliant on its tourism industry. So a lot of kind of local businesses um, and industry leaders will be looking forward to how the vaccine will um, you know, eventually open up borders again and allow tourists to come back in. But the government has tried to justify um, it's slower approach by saying that, you know, they didn't want to order the vaccines during their initial research phases, saying that it was too risky to do so. So I think, you know, two distinct approaches among emerging markets in Asia, um, one more urgent than the other, but, you know, even in those countries that have been a bit slow, we start, we're starting to see, you know, domestic criticism build up and also um, potentially governments changing their um, stance fairly quickly when, when recent outbreaks have occurred. And also, you know, with um, the emergence of more contagious strains of, of COVID-19 that we've seen in the past few weeks and months. Okay, great. Um, Brigitte, there's a lot that you have already uh, touched upon um, and, and quite, quite a few uh, things that we have to uh, dig deeper during this discussion. But Isabel, let me turn uh, to you. Uh, it strikes me that that Africa as such did a fairly good job um, uh, last year in managing the spread of the virus. But recently with the emergence of the new variant from South Africa, it seems that uh, the picture's changing uh, to some extent. How would you say is uh, COVID now affecting the continent and how does it perhaps change the calculus of governments uh, when it comes to planning for vaccination campaigns? Um, thanks, Thomas. And I think that's um, exactly the right way to, to frame this question because it is important to keep in mind how the pandemic has played out on the continent so far because we really started with um, a narrative where we were all worried that the pandemic would be absolutely catastrophic for Africa and then almost did a 180 and the whole world looked at Africa in a bit of surprise because the continent actually seemed to be able to escape some of the very high um, case and death rates that we've seen in, in other parts of the world. And I think that is really important to keep in mind kind of why we talk about this topic throughout the, the whole um, podcast, because up until now, the whole continent has not yet even seen 100,000 deaths. I don't want to trivialize a single one of them, but I do think it's important to um, keep in mind that that is a much lower threshold than what we've seen even in some individual countries in, in other parts of the world. In terms of um, caseload as well, we've only seen about um, 3.7 million deaths out of more than 100 million deaths globally. So that is still quite a small share of the global kind of virus and pandemic load. Um, also important to keep in mind throughout this that in Africa, this has been really dominated by a fairly small number of countries, which have really had a large majority of the, the virus and caseload. 
um, first and foremost, um, South Africa, which has had almost um, 1.5 million of all the 3.7 million cases, and unfortunately has had almost half of all the deaths on, on the continent. Um, but yes, to actually answer your question, there definitely was a, a really notable second wave that started to gather speed in December, which was around the time that we learned about what we've been calling the South African variant. And following or during that second wave, there were definite surges both in deaths and in cases. And especially January was a particularly bad month for, for the continent. For the first time across the continent, more than a thousand people died on January 6th. And the highest daily death tolls and the highest daily case numbers were all recorded in January. So that started to level off again a little bit, but it, there's almost no doubt that that was driven by this new variant. Um, there was one particularly striking example on the way that this new variant was spreading and the impact it was having because there was a, a single two-week period in January where four countries in the um, South African development community, I think it was Zimbabwe, Malawi, Eswatini and South Africa, they lost 10 cabinet ministers. Um, including a prime minister to COVID in a single two-week period. And we definitely know that the South African variant is already in neighboring countries to South Africa, but we've also seen it spread to kind of as far afield as Gambia, Ghana, and Kenya, so not in as high a proportion. I think the emergence of this variant will really mean that countries, especially in Southern Africa, will want to vaccinate as soon as possible before that variant spreads even further. That is really interesting. And you already touched on, on some, some vaccines there because they are obviously a, a key to, to all of this. Um, Brigitte, let me um, quickly go back to, to Asia um, because, you know, really access to vaccines is, is one of the, or if not the key factor uh, in, in government's vaccination plans. Uh, so what are the strategies that Asian governments have pursued to get enough vaccines for the populations? So among the developing um, markets in Asia, there, there are a variety of strategies to procure the vaccines, but the two main ones are obviously for countries like China and India, um, which already have you know, very strong existing pharmaceutical manufacturing capabilities. They are primarily focused on domestic rollout and production. The rest of um, you know, developing markets in Asia are mostly relying on international procurement of vaccines. These governments have signed um, deals with Western providers such as Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, and um, China's Sinovac, um, and others as well. And in many cases, actually, for the latter strategy of international procurement, um, these vaccines will actually be processed and finished in the recipient country. So for example, in Indonesia, um, one of the state firms, Biopharma, will be receiving the raw material from Sinovac. They have actually received these um, materials in batches beginning in December of 2020, um, which will then be processed locally and then distributed across the country. Um, similarly, Thailand has also signed a deal with um, AstraZeneca for its local company to produce um, a total of 26 million vaccines um, to be processed and then finished locally in Thailand. The other interesting thing to note is I think the fact that in some of these markets in Asia, the private sector will also be playing a role in, you know, in vaccination rollout. So Indonesia um, has actually allowed private companies to procure their own vaccines to try to reduce the burden on the state. And this has actually led to some criticism um, by many within the country that you know, this strategy of allowing private vaccination programs will effectively be prioritizing the rich 
and you know isolate some of the um, uh, some of the more vulnerable populations in Indonesia. The government has tried to mitigate these criticisms by you know stipulating that there will be very um, uh, very strong conditions for private vaccinations to happen, including banning private companies from competing with the government in procuring vaccines uh, from overseas, and also not allowing vaccinations um, in any kind of private vaccination program to be run in a state-held um, faci medical facility where the government program is also already ongoing. So, um, but still, you know, it's quite interesting that the private sector has has emerged as a player as well. And it's the same in the Philippines where about 20%, so a fifth of the total vaccines that Philippines um, have kind of planned on getting for the vaccination program is actually being donated to the government by the private sector. So I think in the next few weeks as you know, clearly the burden on the state is extremely, extremely um, heavy. And as the state might need extra help to eventually meet its vaccination targets in these emerging markets in Asia, we will likely hear more about how the private sector will be engaged and will be involved in the in their vaccination programs. Brigitte, that's really interesting. And uh, and Isabel, I'm wondering whether the advantages that Asia has uh, with a strong manufacturing base and and perhaps uh, a vibrant private sector, whether uh, these are these are factors that that governments in Africa can rely on as well, or whether their vaccination strategies actually have to have to use uh, other means to access vaccines. Um, good point, Thomas. I think um, I definitely wouldn't necessarily say the. Um, private sector or even the manufacturing base in Africa is not as vibrant, but there are definitely um, differences in, in vaccine strategies and access to vaccines that, we, that we're seeing in Africa, I would say. Essentially, we're seeing a three-pronged approach to vaccine access that um, kind of governments in Africa have taken. And the three prongs, I would say, are on the one hand side, um, the International COVAX Initiative, which is the one um, led by WHO and Gavi the approach to equitable vaccine procurement. The second prong or second pillar would be um, a procurement drive by the African Union. And the third pillar um, is bilateral deals. If we're speaking of a four pillar of manufacturing, it's much smaller in this instance than, um, than in Asia, but I can touch on that quickly. So COVAX um, has said that it will be making available about 600 million vaccine doses um, to the continent at a discounted price. If we're assuming a two-dose regime, 600 million doses actually is just about enough to vaccinate about 20% of the total population of, of the continent. Um, the population is roughly at 1.3 billion right now. That is obviously not enough to achieve any form of herd immunity, but the idea is that it should at least be enough to vaccinate um, frontline health workers. Then to complement that, the African Union actually did a really great job. They created um, a central vaccine procurement task force, um, and they were able to secure an additional 670 million doses through that. These will also be discounted, and countries can access them in relation to their population size. So between COVAX and the African Union, you actually have over 1.2 billion doses, which again, if we're saying two-dose regime, that could cover about 47% of the African continent. I would say that doesn't sound too bad, but then we have to start taking into account how many doses are actually going to be available when. And so COVAX actually currently thinks that only about 3% of the population rather than 20% will be vaccinated by mid-year. And the African Union has said that out of its 670 million doses, 
only about 50 million will be available between um, April and June. And then suddenly that start, started to sound much more tricky. We're going to start to understand why countries think they need the third pillar of bilateral deals. So some countries have gone down that route. It's still much smaller. And there are very obvious constraints to bilateral deals we can touch on later, both in terms of financing of vaccines, but also pure availability. So that means right now vaccination campaigns have really only started in a handful of countries, I think in Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, so Northern Africa, as well as the Seychelles, which is uh, much more wealthy and Mauritius, as well as Guinea. Um, lastly, I promised quickly to touch on manufacturing. Generally, manufacturing in Africa across the continent has become much more vibrant, but with focus on vaccines, I think there's currently only plans in three countries, in Morocco, Egypt, and South Africa to vaccinate and um, to manufacture COVID vaccines on, on the continent. Okay, that's um, uh, really interesting. And I think what you point out uh, that bilateral deals will become uh, more important raises the the obvious question of where will those vaccines come from and I think at least sitting here in in London there has always been a sense uh, you know or a, a growing a growing uh, recognition that players like China are increasing their footprint on the African continent how how would you describe how Beijing has engaged in vaccine di diplomacy on the continent I think uh, the foreign minister visited Africa during his first visit uh, this year um, and and vaccines uh, and access to vaccines uh, played an important role, at least in official statements. So how has, has Beijing and and for that matter also other players uh, actually uh, used their capacity to deliver vaccines to perhaps, you know, expand their influence in Africa? Um, great question. So yeah, as you say, um, very early on, before any vaccines were even developed, China has already started to make vaccine access a really clear part of its Africa messaging. Um, there was a virtual friendship summit at some point last year, middle of last year, where President Xi already emphasized that Africa would be first in line for any Chinese vaccines. Um, I'm sure Brigitte will touch upon that um, herself, but I think so far it looks as if China, at least initially, has definitely focused on countries somewhat closer to home. But we definitely have seen some bilateral deals on the continent. I think Morocco has signed a deal with Sinopharm. I think as have Egypt, the Seychelles, and Zimbabwe. I think Zimbabwe actually just received 200,000 doses um, this Monday on the, on the 15th of February. And I also know that China has offered the Sinopharm vaccine to um, Ethiopia and Algeria just within the last couple of weeks, but I'm not sure if deals have been concluded there. And I guess what's interesting to highlight is that there may always be some strings attached. So, and it's not often that these strings are not even necessarily particularly hidden. So China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, he was quoted in having said in a call with his Ethiopian counterpart that China would be expecting Addis Ababa um, to, and I quote, play a more profound role in the regional and international affairs. And that he hoped again, quote, that Ethiopia would continue to support China on issues related to China's core interests. So vaccines at least come, might come with a certain um, expectation from China. Um, on the other hand, I think China has also just offered 10 million doses um, of vaccine to COVAX, which would be an interesting addition to the COVAX vaccine mix. Um, on the other hand, with Sinopharm, I still think there are doubts about how effective it is. Outside of China, I would say most bilateral deals on the continent were actually with Russia and India. Um, countries have been particularly keen to get their hands on the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was um, manufactured under license in India. But some of these deals 
predate the study from South Africa about the um, South African variant. Uganda, I think, ordered 18 million doses, and Nigeria is reportedly talking to India, China, and Russia, so kind of spreading the net quite, quite wide. Um, in terms of deals with the West, I think that actually hasn't been particularly pronounced. Just in the last few days, um, South Africa has confirmed that they're going to get some doses from Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. But I think there has been some degree of bitterness that the West is really focused on its own vaccine national, nationalism and that, that's not much, that there's not too much care about vaccine access in, in Africa. There's definitely been support for COVAX, um, including financially. And some people like President Macron, they've paid a lot of lip service to the importance of equitable vaccine access, and they have supported COVAX, as have other Western governments. But I would say in terms of getting vaccines on the ground through bilateral deals, China, India, Russia are definitely far ahead of Europe and the US in Africa. That is really uh, fascinating and, uh, and fascinating to hear how, how you know, as you said, some string, strings attached are not as, as hidden as you might assume. Uh, and I'm wondering uh, also in, in a time where perhaps, you know, confrontation between Western countries and China over Hong Kong and Xinjiang province, for example, are, are heating up, um, that, uh, you know, the, you know, perhaps uh, vaccines might be a useful way for Beijing to remind, to remind countries around the world that, uh, they, that their core interests, uh, you know, perhaps should not be, should not be touched in those areas. Well, Brigitta, maybe back back to to Asia since we're touching on that, um, and since, you know, it's not only China that is increasingly involved in in this diplomacy, but also India. Um, how would you describe the the regional dynamic between uh, those two players trying to? trying to use their vaccines for, for regional diplomacy. Yeah, thanks, Thomas. I think um, I'll go over China briefly first. I mean, in terms of just kind of the reliance on the um, Chinese vaccines, we definitely see kind of a high amount of dependence from some emerging countries in Asia. Um, I would kind of highlight Indonesia and Malaysia as the two main ones. For Indonesia, it has taken some orders from Western um, vaccine providers, but you know, Indonesia was the first country in the world to approve China's Sinovac vaccine outside of China itself um, in, I believe it was early January of this year. And it has actually ordered around 125 million doses of the Sinovac vaccine so far. So Sinovac will you know, by far make up the bulk of the vaccine um, vaccines for Indonesians. Um, and I think, this dependency on, on Chinese vaccines, we're already starting to see how it will have kind of political um, implications for Indonesia. If you kind of compare the um, Indonesian government's reactions towards some of the disputes that it has had with China and some of the standoffs um, its Coast Guard vessels have had in territory that it disputed in the South China Sea, you can see that actually like the reaction um, from early this year when it was very clear that they were going to rely on China for a huge amount of their vaccines has been slightly softened um, by President Jokowi and his administration. So I think we might see, you know, in terms of disputes like the South China Sea, um, you know, other major kind of trade um, issues, we'll probably see South, um, some Southeast Asian countries um, take on a more softened stance because they're um, clearly relying on China for, for a very important um, strategy of, of vaccines. And I think the other thing I wanted to note about China's vaccine diplomacy, which is very important and, and quite um, you know, in stark contrast to India, is that China has largely contained the virus domestically, which means that it's 
it's not as desperate for its own vaccines, you know, to, to be secured for its own population. This is, you know, very much um, in contrast to India, but also major vaccine providers in the West, which may have to eventually prioritize its own populations and, you know, which can then lead into supply delays for overseas markets that have ordered their vaccines. So perhaps some of these South Asian markets see China as a more um, reliable provider of vaccines compared to, to some in the West because of the fact that it has managed to um, largely minimize the spread of the virus um, in its own borders. So for China, really, this is a golden opportunity for it to create goodwill to increase its influence in Southeast Asia, a region of you know, strategic importance um, to China, and also to try to deflect some of the anger and criticism it has received over um, the earlier handling of the pandemic in, in early 2020. Um, and then I'll quickly go over India, which I've also already briefly touched upon. Um, India already has a very well-established reputation as a vaccine manufacturer. It's currently the world's largest manufacturer of vaccines for you know, a slew of different diseases. So it's going to be a very major player in terms of vaccine diplomacy in, among the emerging markets in Asia as well. Um, it's trying to use vaccine diplomacy to try to improve ties with regional neighbors, but also as a tool to try to push back against that, you know, very dominant um, Chinese political and economic influence. But the problem is, like I mentioned before, is that unlike China, India has not really managed to contain the virus domestically. It's still struggling with um, a very high caseload um, and a very high death rate as well. So the if it kind of engages, continues to engage with vaccine diplomacy and it has pledged to give and provide um, free doses to many countries globally and within um, Asia as well, um, there will be, and there already has been domestic criticism that you know this will come at the cost of vulnerable Indians who will not be able to get the vaccines on their own. So I think this is an important kind of distinction to make between India and China, the fact that India really has not been able to um, contain the virus as well as China has. Yeah, that's um, that that's a very important point, I think, um, because uh, you know governments uh, obviously making that distinction between uh, foreigners and and their own population uh, might actually come under a lot of pressure if they are seen as as uh, favoring uh, favoring other other countries. I'm wondering, Isabel. Um, Obviously, the supply of, of vaccine is one important component, but it's by far not, not, not everything that is needed to really uh, roll out vaccines. And it strikes me that in terms of infrastructure, in terms of perhaps the cooling facilities that you need and, and the administrative capacity, uh, many countries on the African continent uh, will face many more constraints than just the access to, uh, to vaccines from, from different producers. What are the, the constraints that you would perhaps highlight the most? Uh, and, and what do you think uh, that might mean for, for the recovery that we see in these countries? So in other words, when do you think will actually vaccines have reached enough of uh, African populations uh, for, for herd immunity to, to really bring down the spread of the virus? Yeah, very good question, Thomas. And I think it's very true. Um, that access is only one part of the, the calculation here. And that's what makes getting the vaccine mix right even more important, because as we know, for example, the Pfizer vaccine does need ultra cold storage, whereas the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't. Um, 
that's probably the first constraint I would highlight. Many countries will definitely struggle with ultra cold storage, and some will even struggle with maintaining um, kind of a, a regular cold chain. I think the WHO currently counts only about 22 African countries as having um, kind of a working cold chain system, system for routine vaccines. So that's going to be something that countries definitely need to get right if they're serious about vaccinating. Um, I don't think we should underestimate anyone. For instance, the Ebola vaccine requires ultra cold storage. And that was definitely possible in some very poor countries under very challenging circumstances. But that will be a key um, priority. Outside of cold storage, I think we have to consider um, everything from the availability of syringes, gloves, masks, disinfectant wipes to actually the trained health workers to administer the vaccines. Some countries here will be better than others. South Africa has a phenomenally well-trained community health worker workforce, but other countries will, will struggle more. And of course, countries will actually also need to set up systems to monitor the rollout, to track who has received which doses, for instance. Um, for some countries, I think it's also really worth highlighting the challenge that they're facing simply because of the sheer size of their populations. Um, Ethiopia, which is, I think, 114 million um, people, they're only planning to administer about 20 million vaccine doses in 2021. So we're going to be far, far, far away from herd immunity. And Nigeria, which has some pretty ambitious plans for its um, just over 200 million people, but commentators have said, kind of, as soon as some of these figures were released, like that they are um, overly optimistic slash not particularly founded in, in fact. So these vast countries will really struggle with getting vaccines there. And I think then lastly, we also have to think about vaccine acceptance. There were some studies in December that found relatively high acceptance rates um, across 15 different countries. On average, I think 80% said that they would take a COVID vaccine if it was deemed safe and effective. That may depend on the vaccine available, but also there are often really strong correlations between trust in government and vaccine acceptance. And unfortunately, trust isn't very high in many countries. And you might get countries like Tanzania, where the president, um, Magafuri, he's actually denied that COVID is present and has rejected vaccine offers from COVAX, from the AU. So if a vaccine ever does make it to Tanzania, after that sort of communication, you will really be facing um, an uphill battle. Again, I think we do, it's not all doom and gloom. We've also seen some really innovative solutions. We've seen Ghana use drones to um, move um, COVID tests around the country, and both Ghana and the DRC are considering using drones to aid in the vaccine rollout, but there definitely are challenges. Right, um, to touch on the prospects for recovery. I'm gonna try and make it brief because I think in my eyes, it's less clear kind of how closely we can link vaccine rollouts to the economic recovery. Because we have seen those um, lighter caseloads, we have seen the lower mortality, and we have seen fewer full lockdowns right now, I think vaccines may be less directly linked to the domestic resumption of normal economic activity. And given that we definitely won't see herd immunity in 2021, possibly not even 2022, other measures will definitely have to remain in place, and vaccines will only be one part of the kind of ongoing pandemic response. So I think that means that the countries who are set up better for economic recovery are essentially doors with better pre-pandemic fundamentals and especially the more diversified economies, they will do better than doors with worse pre-pandemic fundamentals. I think in the first camp, we'll have countries like Kenya, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal. In the second camp of countries that are struggling more, probably we're looking at Nigeria, South Africa, um, countries like Zambia. And I think as a last point, 
we also shouldn't forget that for some countries, vaccines may actually interfere with their economic recovery. They may be an extra drain on resources. In the recent um, debt restructuring request from Ethiopia, there was a very clear implication that they asked for this debt restructuring because they need money to secure vaccines and to finance the rollout. And the executive secretary of the United Nations um, Economic Commission for Africa, um, Vera Songwe, she has said that she very clearly believes that more countries will go for these debt restructurings simply because they do need more additional fiscal space to purchase vaccines. So a mixed picture, but I think we'll, we'll be dealing with this in Africa for a long time. So then let me let me ask you, um, you know, I, I know you you are you are a fond uh, traveler. Uh, you like to 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 go from from African country to country. When do you think you'll be able to to do that again? Oh, that's a great question. And we're obviously talking about a, a hugely diverse number of countries here. And currently, the vast majority of countries have some sort of restrictions in place. Um, and restrictions for international arrivals, including quarantines and testing requirements. So from the past, I'm definitely quite used to having to show my yellow fever vaccine certificate when I travel to West Africa, but I'm not currently expecting countries to, for example, go for COVID vaccine passports on masse. I think especially kind of multi-country trips where you're popping from one country to another, they're probably some way off. I think you can possibly see um, some trips to individual countries where you might have to take into account quarantines um, this year, but I think it's going to be a really mixed bag across the continent reliant on who's going to be faster and more successful in rolling out vaccines. And we'll, we really have to wait and see, I think. Yeah. Um... I, I guess, uh, as you say, there are a lot of uh, uncertainty still still at play. And actually, uh, looking at uh, a vast continent like like Africa, um, countries are, are obviously uh, not the same. But you need to look very uh, carefully at each individual uh, country and their circumstances. Uh, Brigitta, let me uh, bring you back into to this because I I feel that the constraints that governments uh, have in many of uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, in many uh, Southeast Asian countries, um, perhaps are in part uh, similar to, to Africa, but I think there are, there seem to me also a few unique uh, perhaps challenges uh, that uh, the region faces. Can you can you give us your sense of of what are the, the main uh, the main factors, perhaps also political factors that uh, might uh, hold back uh, the successful vaccine rollout? Yeah, sure, Thomas. I think um, as Isabel has already kind of, you know, mentioned a lot of these um, challenges, it's, it's similar to a lot of emerging markets in Asia. Things like, um, you know, bureaucratic uh, capabilities and efficiency, logistical challenges, and I think very crucially for um, countries like India and Indonesia, population size. These factors will all play a huge role in, in how successful a vaccination um, program would be. Um, to kind of touch briefly on India and Indonesia, um, you know, respectively, the second and fourth um, large, most populous countries in the world. Um, just the sheer size of the population presents a huge challenge, but this again is coupled with um, inadequate and poor infrastructure in many parts of both countries. So in terms of getting the vaccines out to rural areas, this will make it um, very difficult. In Indonesia, I know there's been a lot of um, discussions already about you know, the, the lack of suitable syringes um, and also the kind of 
um, the fact that storage options like refrigerated trucks, um, cold storage containers, they are all still lacking, especially for what a, you know, a huge population of 260 million um, people actually wants. Um, within Southeast Asia, I think we can't discount the fact that Indonesia and the Philippines, for example, are both very large archipelagos. Again, the logistical challenges that this presents um, will potentially cause delays in the vaccination strategies. So for these um, countries, I think, you know, the size of the population, um, major infrastructure and logistical barriers, they will all likely mean that the vaccination targets that the government has initially set might probably be too um, ambitious. Um, as, you know, you and Isabel already mentioned, just the, the orders and the access to the vaccines are not, you know, that's not the whole, um, that's not the whole equation. These countries will then need to kind of distribute the vaccines and, and the issues that I've talked about just, just previously will mean that, you know, it's very unlikely that they will achieve their targets and therefore herd immunity by potentially early next year or even mid next year. Um, I think in terms of exact timing of, of when um, herd immunity will be achieved and how this will impact economic recovery for the region, again, it's hard to say, but I think even, you know, it, it's worth noting that even in Asia, including the advanced economies like Japan, South Korea, um, it's likely that only Singapore will probably reach its uh, vaccination targets. Singapore has um, uh, seeks to vaccinate almost all, almost um, almost all of its population by the end of this year. So I think around ninety percent, and it's on target to do that based on current numbers. But for major emerging markets like the ones we talked about, India, um, very ambitious goals of targeting um, to vaccinate about twenty five percent of its population by late summer. That doesn't seem very likely because so far, you know, end of February, they've only managed to inoculate 3 million healthcare workers. So again, it seems like they're lagging behind. If they really want to meet that summer um, target of 300 million people, they will probably need to step up their pace um, substantially. Um, and Indonesia, um, same issue, you know, they're aiming to vaccinate two thirds of its population. So about 180 million people by March of next year. But you know, this has been labeled um, quite unrealistic by many public health experts. Um, the more kind of realistic timeline that has been kind of um, uh, talked about is probably three and a half years. So we're looking at maybe 2023, 2024 to actually achieve um, herd immunity in Indonesia. So I think there's a lot of um, kind of other factors, you know, outside beyond um, access to vaccines and, and the existing orders for vaccines that we have to look at when we're um, looking at how realistic the vaccination targets would be. Um, and, you know, the political factors are interesting as well. We have um, countries that are like Thailand that has had, you know, a very strong anti-government protest movement happening ever since last year. So it will be interesting to see, you know, in countries like Thailand and even Malaysia, where there's been a lot of political volatility um, since the pandemic started in early 2020, how will the success of the vaccination um, rollout plans um, impact these governments, impact political risk and government stability as a whole? I think it's fair to say that, you know, um, for some of these countries, um, the vaccination rollout is a key test for the government and, and will be um, kind of a, a major way for them to gain public trust. And if they do fail on that vaccination front, then I think it's a it's another hit to a very vulnerable government already. So we might even see more political instability in places like Thailand, Malaysia. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting to kind of bring in the political factors in, into the discussion as well. 
Of course, uh, being being based in in the UK and seeing uh, the government's response here, it seems that. Uh, uh, you know, the vaccine rollout can be a risk for governments, but can also be a, potentially a, some sort of a political lifeline uh, for governments that struggle to contain uh, the pandemic in the first place. Um, let me ask you um, the same uh, last question that I asked uh, Isabel. Um, when do you think we'll be able to, to visit you in, in Singapore? And when do you think you will be able to travel again through, uh, through Southeast Asia? Uh, it's hard to say because as much as I want to, um, you know, take a trip outside of Singapore for a little bit, I think despite my initial hopes, um, governments in the region have um, have largely been quite hesitant to kind of roll out or even um, start announcing measures that would relax um, border closures and quarantine requirements, even for those that have been vaccinated. So I think it's interesting if we look at Thailand, you know, a very tourism dependent country, I think tourism contributes to almost 80% of its total GDP. I think I was initially expecting the government to be a bit more proactive in terms of um, allowing those who have been vaccinated to enter the country to kind of revive the economy, revive the tourism industry. But despite growing calls from you know, the tourism and aviation industries in Thailand, the government has also been you know, quite um, apprehensive and, and quite slow in, in, in specifying exactly how um, vaccinations will um, change uh, border closures and quarantine requirements. So I'm still a bit skeptical, um, hoping that, you know, travel will resume maybe in early 2022, but um, we'll see. On that, uh, on that note, uh, with some cautious optimism, I would say, um, I think uh, our time is, is now up. Um, so I would like to thank you, you both, um, Brigitte and Isabel, for joining uh, the discussion today uh, and to to give the listener a better understanding of what I think are really critical questions um, that will uh, will be with us uh, at least uh, this year, if not uh, the next uh, couple of years. And uh, and so I hope uh, our listeners have, have enjoyed the insight and I wish everyone a very good, uh, uh, good, uh, good morning. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.